This week's TribCast is sponsored by Pastors for Texas Children, mobilizing the faith community for great public schools. Learn more at pastorsfortexaschildren.com. And Fairmont Austin. Experience downtown luxury at Fairmont Austin with exclusive rates and long-term stay offers for government employees. For more information, visit fairmontaustin.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for March 17th, 2021. My name is Patrick Svitek, and I'm the Trib's primary political correspondent, filling in for your usual host, Matthew Watkins. This week, I'm joined by politics reporter Cassie Pollack. Hello. Demographics and politics reporter Alexa Uda. Hello. And executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, we're recording this late Wednesday morning. Late last night, there was some breaking news. Uh, Arthur D'Andrea, the chairman of the Public Utility Commission, uh, resigned uh, after Governor Abbott says that he asked for his resignation. Uh, who here wants to take a stab at, at what precipitated this fall? Do we know why he resigned and what were some of the events leading up to it? Don't Cassie, go for jump up at once. <laughs> <laughs> Very revealing silence. <laughs> It was a, it was a long day. I mean, they went they went through all of these. You know, we thought we had the last story of the day about four times. Um, you know, uh, Patrick and the Senate rushed through a bunch of legislation on Monday uh, on this repricing issue. This is the idea that the uh, PUC and ERCOT um, basically kept the pedal down too long on top pricing during the freeze. And their idea was we should keep emergency pricing to maintain the reliability of the electric grid. It gets very complex very quickly. But the independent market monitor that also works for the state or is hired by the state said that that resulted in $16 billion of charges that shouldn't have been made. So there's this effort in the legislature to turn back the clock and get that $16 billion back. That's pretty complicated. Brian Hughes, who's a senator from Mineola, describes it as trying to unscramble an egg. But um, anyway, so they're working on that. The Senate passed a bill very quickly. Dan Patrick has consistently been pressuring the governor uh, to get rid of the three public utility commissioners. And he wanted ERCOT to get rid of its CEO. And as of yesterday, two commissioners had resigned. The board of ERCOT had fired its CEO. Patrick appeared to be winning. But there was one commissioner left. And um, you know, I guess the, to cut to the chase here, which I've done a poor job of to cut to the chase here, the, that commissioner was asked by the governor to resign last night and sent a letter over saying, I'll resign as soon as my replacement's named. Do we know exactly why he was asked to resign? Obviously there's been a lot in the air on this issue. Um, a lot of back and forth mm-hmm. capital, um, and a lot of drama. Cassie, have we heard anything about why exactly he was asked to resign? So we haven't, no, to answer your question, uh, the reason for his resignation has not, you know, really been revealed uh, yet, but the news of the resignation did come hours after Texas Monthly reported that uh, DeAndrea had told out-of-state investors on a call uh, recently that he would work to throw the weight of the entire commission behind uh, stopping calls to, uh, you know, reverse those billions of dollars in charges for uh, electricity, That what, what Ross was referring to as the repricing debate. Um, there was um, an unfortunate soundbite 
I would say uh, for Andrea, uh, De Andrea on that, um, where he basically uh, told folks on the call that, you know, he went from being on a very hot seat to having one of the safest jobs in Texas and that he, uh, you know, basically thought that it was just going to be a, a one man show, him running the commission for a while. And uh, part, part of the reason for that would be, uh, you know, any appointee or any appointment that Abbott would decide to make during the legislative session would have to be first confirmed by the Senate before they could start serving in that capacity. So, yeah, that leads us to the question of what's next here. Abbott said that he's going to name uh, this guy's replacement, I think, quote, in the coming days, which is a, a pretty vague timeline. Um, how, you know, and as you pointed out, this appointee is now going to have to go through um, a Senate confirmation, um, assuming that, quote, in the coming days means before the end of the, <laughs> the session. Um, so how, how tough of a battle awaits him in the Senate, which is controlled uh, by Dan Patrick or overseen by Dan Patrick, who we know has some strong, some strong opinions on this thing. I don't think Abbott can appoint anybody that Patrick hasn't already pre-blessed. Right. I mean, it would be, you know, I mean, you're just walking into a fight unless you um, send over a list of names and say, are any of these going to get their head lopped off if they go in front of the Senate? Um, rather than have that fight, you know, I think Patrick's maneuvered himself very successfully into a negotiating position with the governor where he has veto power over who the next PUC commissioners are going to be. Right. And is there, is there anyone, I'm trying to check this right now in real time, but is there anyone on the Senate nominations committee who hasn't already voted for the electricity repricing bill? So we, we know where all these nomination members are on. Yeah. I'm just checking it now. Every, so everybody who's on the Senate, all the Republicans, and the Democrats, I believe, except for Sarah Eckhart. Um, so you have eight out of nine members of the Senate Nominations Committee who have already gone on the record as having um, voting in favor of that electricity repricing bill. And so it's not exactly like, you know, even if Patrick, um, you know, had this view, it's not exactly like there's going to be any independent votes uh, on that issue when it comes to the next PUC chair on the, on the uh, Nominations Committee. I think one of the problems here is that, you know, for the PUC, you want somebody with some technical expertise, but you also want people without conflicts of interest. And it's sort of like, you know, it's hard to get the technical expertise without also getting a conflict of interest. I work for XYZ utility keeps you off of the commission, even though you may be well qualified for it. And I've never worked for a utility in my life kind of keeps you off the technical capabilities list. So it's a, it's a pretty skinny list of people who would be, you know, even, um, you know, have the resume for this job. And, and then you've got to find somebody who's got the political resume for this job. I think it's going to be, this is going to be tough. Yeah. It's going to be a level of scrutiny on an appointee that I don't think we've seen in, in recent memory in Austin. I mean, I, you know, I kind of defer to you, Ross, a little bit on this because you have the most experience of all of us, but you know, the governor makes hundreds, if not thousands of appointments, most of them slide under the radar because they're happening in between session. They don't have to you know, they're not going through uh, confirmation battles in, in real time. Um, but then you do, you know, every now and then have something like this where the public spotlight gets really hot and bright on a singular appointee. I mean, how unusual is it for one of these appointees to be at the center of, of one of the top, you know, controversies of the day in Austin? It, it's unusual for the PUC. I mean, Alexa had one in the spotlight uh, fairly, in a fairly recent session. I mean, you know, sometimes you get somebody... This is like you say, I mean, this is ordinarily like a regular backstage affair. You know, people get appointed, they get confirmed, bada bing, bada boom. Most of the jobs 
that they're getting appointed to, not all of them, certainly, but most of the jobs they're getting appointed to don't pay anything. You know, they're like, you know, you're going to be on an advisory commission for XYZ, you know, XYZ agency. A few of them are high paid jobs with really big responsibilities. PUC is one of those. Alexa covered a, you know, tumultuous secretary of state issue a few years ago. That's another big job, high profile job. Ordinarily, nobody knows. Most people, I don't think even know Texas had a secretary of state. Right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think as someone who <laughs> hasn't been covering the politics and the back and forth on this, like I'll have, the thing that has become more and more notable is, you know, obviously after in the aftermath of a disaster like that, you look for who's to blame, right? Like we saw similarly with the voter rolls, like where does the buck stop with uh, a botched effort like this? And there was all of this attention on ERCOT, this like agency that nobody even knew existed before this. And then you saw Patrick really pushing for more attention on the PUC commissioners, which are obviously Abbott appointees. But there's also, I mean, like, where is the attention on when you're looking for someone to blame? It's obviously not an easy answer, but it seems like this is this goes beyond one individual or one group of individuals. And and there's been so many observations about Patrick really going after Abbott to make sure his appointees are also scrutinized. But there's also an extent to this that falls on the legislature, right? Like this is the, the formula in which this happened was set up by the legislature as well. And so I, I don't know, I think as someone on the outside of the politics, the, the back and forth that has emerged in the last few days is, is so po- politically charged and doesn't really leave people who were left without power without any answers as to what's going to happen so this doesn't happen again. Right. There's no doubt this conversation, especially in the past week, has really placed the, the blame, um, you know, almost one dimensionally upon uh, the regulatory world and has taken attention away from the culpability of, of the legislature in, in all of this. Um, before you said that, Alex, I was going to ask you, I mean, covering the and I know these are not parallel situations by any measure, but covering the David Whitley um, saga last session and seeing how Abbott, you know, clung to his appointee till really the final moment. Were you surprised to see this come to such an abrupt end for this Abbott appointee? Yeah, I mean, I think I I was surprised generally for Abbott to act so forcefully so quickly in, in light of what happened with Whitley. And obviously we don't know specifically what might have led him to ask for this resignation, but you you can't look at these side by side, even if they're not perfectly analogous and think about you know, there were people, there was outcry over the actions of these individuals, either as individuals or in the position that they were in, right, in the official position they were in. And in one case, Abbott, you know, stuck with his man until the very, very, very end and ended up getting him another job in his office eventually. And this time around, this was a pretty, a pretty different outcome, even if they're not perfectly analogous. Right. Um Cassie, this, you know, as we wrote yesterday, this uh, debate over this electricity repricing bill has really exposed um, what we characterize as the first major schism this session between the House and the Senate. I mean, how has that relationship been up until this point? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that uh, you're right. It is it is the first kind of uh, major bit of daylight that we've seen between the House and the Senate on this. And, you know, as of this morning, uh, the speaker, House Speaker Dade Phelan, was uh, speaking with members of the GOP caucus, and you know, based on folks that we were checking in with, you know, was was pretty much uh, continuing to hold the line on we don't 
we're, we're going to actually take our time and be deliberate and, and uh, pass legislation that's going to prevent this from happening again. The, the repricing debate doesn't really seem to be something that House leadership is interested in taking up right now. Um, up until this point, though, I mean, you know, I think for one, there really hasn't been that much to debate up until this point, given uh, the, the pandemic and, um, you know, the amount of time that lawmakers have spent in, inside the building. And, you know, I think it sets it up just for an interesting, uh, you know, certainly interesting rest of the week on this issue. And for sure, you know, uh, if folks were bored with uh, the way that session was going so far, uh, I don't think that you can uh, be bored uh, at this point now that uh, things have started to pick up. <laughs> yeah, things are, things are definitely heating up a little bit. Um, Ross, what do you, I mean, what incentive would the House House leadership at least have to side with Patrick on this? I mean, to, to, to get behind this hurried push for this um, electricity repricing bill would obviously be to side with the, the lieutenant governor and in some ways cross the governor. I mean, is there any reason to believe that the House can be persuaded between now and when there is the effective deadline for this bill on, I think, Saturday? Well, if you just go to policy, I mean, if you convince them that you've got a pricing error uh, during the freeze that needs to be corrected so that the companies involved can sort it out. And if any of this is going to go down to, you know, taxpayers or customers or shareholders, you want to get that sorted out as quickly as possible. So the, the policy answer to that is, you know, let's get an answer to this thing, give everybody some certainty and get everything back on track, whatever that track is. That's the speed argument. The argument against it is this is, you know, really, really complex, and they want to be sure that they're not doing more harm than good. And that's an argument for taking your time. I think right now, Phelan's leaning toward the second, the Senate's obviously leaving toward the first. And so there's a mismatch on, on that, just on the policy. And then you get into the politics and, you know, it's hard to make a vote on this now, the way it's set up between Patrick and the governor in particular, without also sort of inadvertently making a political statement. Do you think this is a, at this point, and I know things are moving quickly, do you think that this is as much of a political problem, uh, as far as Abbott is concerned, a political problem for him with the broader electorate, or more of a inside the Capitol um, power problem for him? Uh, you know, this perception that Dan Patrick is, is running the show on this and putting him in and ramping up pressure on Abbott and putting him in an uncomfortable position. I think it's the latter. I don't think anybody has a real sense of this storm cost me this much money or X amount of money because of whatever regulatory action was taken or because of the legislature. Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, obviously some people got a really high bill and that's the way that market worked. And, but what the governor and the Senate are fighting about right now, isn't that person's bill. This is, that's something else altogether. I think right now this is, you know, what it is, it's also a way, you know, in some ways it's a fight over what are we going to talk about? I mean, you got to this a minute ago. Are we going to talk about the freeze or do we want to change the subject to immigration or do we want to change the subject to, you know, any of a number of other things um, that aren't so damaging to the governor? I think this is right now a political problem. Right. And that was my kind of final big picture question on all this is, is how much has this upended the, the legislative agenda and how much has it upended what Abbott would you know much rather focus on? I mean, I think it's pretty notable that the morning after this resignation and, and you know, Austin still being very much consumed by this electricity repricing debate, Abbott is heading to Dallas to, you know, again, try to shift the focus to Biden's border policies, 
um, any influx of unaccompanied minors at the border. So, I mean, I guess that's a two-part question there, but how much does has this all taken up oxygen that could otherwise have been devoted to other items on the legislative agenda and just how politically inconvenient has it become for Abbott? Cassie, you want to take a sort step? Of, yeah. There's kind of two answers. Oh. <laughs> Cassie, go ahead. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I just think that items that we were kind of talking about before the winter storm hit. So Patrick, I mean, I know that you're covering the, the gambling casinos issue. I mean, I think that members and, and folks who are trying to push that issue at the Capitol, um, you know, uh, whatever sort of long shot odds they were facing uh, has been, you know, multiplied, let's just say by two or three, you know, effectively dead. And I think everyone's just kind of assuming that uh, the rest of the session is going to be focused on figuring out what to do about the winter storm. They still have to pass, you know, both chambers still have to agree on on what sort of uh, budget needs to uh, get sent to the governor's desk for a signature. And um, I only know this because I write the blast every day and I have a countdown at the top of the newsletter. We have 75 days left of the legislature. Next week session. is the halfway point, right? Yes, yes. And it wasn't like they're already off to a blazing fast start already. This was an unusually slow start to the session due to uh, COVID more or less. Right. Right. And you've seen that, you know, and, and, you know, lawmakers get on panels or they make remarks that during committee hearings and whatnot, everyone's kind of acknowledged that things were already running behind schedule and having to figure out policy and what, what sorts of policies need to get passed with regards to the winter storm, I think, um, you know, have just already added to the uh, heavy plate uh, that lawmakers were already having to deal with this session. Ross, any final thoughts on this topic? I just think if you're talking about something you want to be talking about, you keep that subject open. And if things aren't, you know, if the headlines aren't what you want to talk about, you change the subject. And the governor's been changing the subject as often as he could here. Um, I don't think he's on ground he wants to be fighting on. I think he'd rather be talking today about immigration than talking about the freeze and prices and Dan Patrick. Right. And now we'll take a quick break from our sponsors. Lone Star College. Lone Star College provides affordable, world-class education and contributes nearly $3 billion to our local economy. Find out more at lonestar.edu. And the Texas Regional Mobility Authority. The Texas Regional Mobility Authority implements innovative and sustainable transportation solutions to enhance quality of life and economic vitality in Central Texas. Learn more at mobilityauthority.com. Well, in our final... Uh... 10 minutes here, I wanna talk about a story that uh, Alexa covered this week. Um, you know, the governor was in, in Houston on Monday to throw his uh, support behind bills that, you know, he describes as addressing his his priority of uh, election integrity this session. Um, I know there are multiple pieces of legislation wrapped up in this Alexa, but can you just give us a, a brief overview of what this package would do broadly? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, not everything is sort of aligned in terms of a package, but I think what we saw on Monday particularly was, Abbott finding in Harris County a sort of new foe when it comes to or, or justification when it comes to pushing some of the restrictions and or legislation that the GOP wants to do as a response to the 2020 election. You know, obviously, all of us know Harris County has emerged as, you know, the largest Democratic county. I mean, it's largest county in the in the state, but also this large democratic stronghold now where we're newly recently under democratic control where election officials really tried to push the envelope on 
voting access. You know, they had 24-hour voting. They had extended hours. They uh, tried to get more people to vote by mail. And basically, the governor appeared at this press conference and tried to say, we don't like any of that. We are going to stop not only Harris County from doing that in the future, but make sure that other counties don't try to do that. And so, you know, I think it was kind of the opening in what I what I think maybe Abbott would be um, obviously a big issue this session. Just to circle us back to that last question you asked, I will say that that was the same day that I was writing that story was the same day the Senate was doing all of its um, hijinks to get that bill passed. And so even <laughs> the, it was even overrun by that on the day it was announced. But, you know, I think this is where a lot of the push is going to be this session. If, if there is any focus on election specific bills, there are quite a few other things that Republicans want to pass that aren't directly uh, targeting Harris County. Um, but I, I would say if, if some things are going to get passed, it's going to be the things that would impact Harris County or, or at least curtail what Harris County tried to do. And what was the Democratic response to Abbott's presser, because obviously there are statements and, you know, sometimes counter events anytime Abbott, uh, you know, gets uh, has a, like a legislative uh, unveiling like this. But it seemed like, you know, I was shocked by just the number of events, a number of statements that I saw by Democratic officials in my inbox and on Twitter. Um, the, the fierceness and the breadth of the, the pushback to this was was pretty remarkable on, on Monday. Yeah, I, I agree. It was sort of surprisingly forceful from what we're used to by Democrats and surprisingly forceful so quickly, right? So even, even while Abbott was speaking, Harris County had already uh, announced that they would have, um, you know, quote unquote, a response. They had actually set it up to comment on Senate Bill 7 by Republican Brian Hughes, uh, which would target in, among other things, some of the things Harris County did last session. And it just so happened that then the governor also did this press conference. And so they were able to respond to both. And, and you know, I think what you heard from Lina Hidalgo, the county judge there, was also a pretty a pretty forceful response to say to connect what Republicans were trying to do now uh, to some of the voter suppression laws that we've seen in the past in sort of the more Jim Crow era um, and trying to call it a modern iteration of it. You know, there were they were defending what they did as things that were meant to widen access that voters in Harris County took advantage of. And for them to try to roll that back, it, you know, amounts to sort of modern voter suppression. You also saw uh, a group of Democrats respond pretty quickly later that afternoon as well uh, with a similar sentiment um, that, you know, kind of put this in the context of the national push we're seeing among Republicans to to force some restrictions after their defeats in the 2020 election. Obviously, you can't separate that from the way they've been trying to make this about, you know, widespread voter fraud that obviously doesn't exist and that there is no evidence to prove that it, it is as widespread as they claim. Uh, but, but it continues to be this sort of we want to prevent even the opportunity of fraud while the Democrats and local officials say there is no evidence that what you want to prevent is even happening. And, you know, none of that is that that's pretty familiar if you've been covering this for a while or been paying attention for a while. And, you know, I think the extent to which we'll actually see that play out will be interesting um, if the Democrats kind of hold up this uh, more forceful response that they at least presented on Monday. Are there any provisions in this group of legis a group of bills that you think face um, a harder path at the legislature than others, or is it is it too early to tell? I think it's too early to tell what sort of appetite 
there both chambers will be able to sort of meet on. Um, I don't think that the tension that's happening on other matters helps probably come to sort of a, a common ground there. Uh, but I think that the things targeting Harris County seem like such an easy thing for Republicans to defend with their voters, uh, particularly given the battleground Harris County has become in so many ways. And I, I also think that some of those provisions, you know, things that would keep counties from sending out uh, mail-in ballot applications proactively, uh, things that would limit early voting hours so you can't have 24-hour voting, things that would cut off drive-through voting, which Harris County also championed. Those things exist in some of the bigger priority bills that have been filed, but also in standalone bills that have been filed. And so there are plenty of vehicles, I think, for those to, for at least some of those to maybe make it to the governor's desk. Yeah, Cassia Ross, just in the final uh, couple minutes here, how do you handicap this legislation as well, or just this issue in general, obviously of the governor naming it an emergency item, it's uh, among the lieutenant governor's priorities. I haven't heard the House Speaker Dave Phelan talk about it as specifically, um, but in general, does this issue have a, a pretty smooth path at the legislature, or do you think it, it could get derailed? Cassie, go for it. No, Ross, you, please. I took the, the last question first. It's, it's like Chip and Dale. <laughs> I, I, you know, this is obviously a governor priority. I think it's a priority for probably for the Senate as well. I don't sense that in the House. And, you know, one of the things that hits a number of provisions of, you know, an omnibus election law or voting law change is that, you know, you probably have a majority of legislators who want to change election and voting law, but they're not all going in the same direction. And you've got to get everybody behind a particular idea. Um, you know, Harris County's, I agree with Alexa, Harris County's easy to shoot at. I just don't know if you can get the legislature really lit up on this while they're also lit up on freezes and, you know, police reform and all of the other issues that are facing this legislature and the shortage of time, you know, that's on Cassie's clock at the top of the blast every day. Right. I mean, just to be clear, Cassie, the, the speaker, Dave Phelan, hasn't said much about this, right? I mean, not, not even close to calling it right. a in his chamber. What, why do you right. think that is? Right. Um, I, I don't know why that is. Um, you know, I, my sense has been, you know, that the House or the, the Speaker's uh, really prioritizing, uh, obviously, House Bill 3 by Justin Burroughs. And then the most recent version of that legislation that uh, is aimed uh, at, you know, Harris and Dallas County and, and kind of some of the headlines that we saw out of the, the 2020 election, like Alexa's uh, talking about here. And, you know, there's a provision that would, uh, essentially require every single local jurisdiction before they want to alter their voting procedures to first get permission from the Secretary of State. And, you know, uh, there's a provision in House Bill 3, which the Speaker's office has called on multiple occasions, you know, a, a, a blueprint for the, for the, you know, the House's blueprint for the pandemic response. So, you know, if I'm trying to guess here, you know, make a couple different assumptions, maybe, you know, that's the preferred vehicle for, for getting at some of these reforms. Um, I'm just not sure. I would assume that the one, you know, I guess, sign of hope in the House is the new House Elections uh, Committee Chairman, Briscoe Kane, who, um, you know, is obviously very interested in these issues, helped the Trump, the Trump campaign with their election challenge. And I think it was Pennsylvania, if I'm wrong, Alexa. I mean, how much does his chairmanship change the, the increase the odds of this in the House, I guess, just in terms of getting it to the floor, it's, it's helpful, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that uh, the speaker did 
provide, I would suppose, I don't know if it was requested or not, but there was a, a quote from the speaker included in Briscoe Kane's uh, press release announcing uh, right. sort of his priority bill. And that's one of the ones that would uh, proactively stop counties from sending out those mail-in ballot applications like Harris County tried to do. You know, it was a pretty, I think, generic quote from, from the speaker. Sure. But, but a signal nonetheless. Yeah, but a signal nonetheless. And, and I think with, with uh, the new chairman of that committee, we've already seen during the last, uh, their last hearing, they actually voted out bills on the same day they were considered, which as we all know, is pretty unusual um, in the legislature. They usually sort of leave them pending and come back to them another day. And so, you know, I think it was also an early signal that he may be willing to work committee part of this a little bit different to get things into the pipeline a little bit more uh, quicker than they might normally. Got it. Well, we'll see where that issue goes and that debate goes, especially with this PUC electricity repricing debate eating up all the oxygen uh, in Austin for the time being. Uh, that's all the time we have this week for the TripCast. I want to say thank you to Cassie, Alexa, Ross, and Justin, our producer. And thank you to our sponsors, Pastors for Texas Children, the Fairmont Austin, Lone Star College, and the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority. We'll see you all next week. Do I have to talk to you?